Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is William Eddy, a family law attorney, therapist, and mediator with over 30 years of experience working with children and families. He is the senior family mediator at the National Conflict Resolution Center in San Diego, California. He is also the president of the High Conflict Institute, which provides speakers, trainers, and consultants on the subject of managing high-conflict people in legal disputes, workplace disputes, healthcare, and education. He has taught negotiation and mediation at the University of San Diego School of Law, and he teaches psychology of conflict at the Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution at Pepperdine University School of Law. His books include Splitting, Protecting Yourself While Divorcing Someone with Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder, uh, BIFF, Quick Responses to High Conflict People, Their Personal Attacks, Hostile Email, and Social Media Meltdowns, It's All Your Fault, 12 Tips for Managing People Who Blame Others for Everything, and today we're going to talk about his latest book, which he co-authored with psychologist Donald Saposnik called Splitting America, How Politicians, Super PACs, and the News Media Mirror High Conflict Divorce. Wow, that's a mouthful. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you very much, Miriam. I'm really glad to be available to talk about this today. Well, you know, it's fascinating that your work has focused so much on conflict and the resolution of conflict. What a fascinating specialty to choose. What drew you into this field? Well, I've always been attracted to other people's conflicts. I think we all prefer other people's conflicts. And I I wanted to understand them, manage them, help them. I've worked with children and families all my life. I actually uh, was a school teacher in the 1970s, child and family counselor in the 1980s. I liked the mediation process, and so I actually became a lawyer in the 1990s and practiced family law and especially family mediation because I really believed and I do believe that the best place for family disputes is out of court in more of a structured setting where everyone can hear each other and make proposals and be more rational than an adversarial setting where the goal is to eliminate the other party. So yes. that's that's what drew me into this. Yes, indeed. This is such a perfect time for this, this discussion because we've just finished the three presidential debates prior to the election plus one vice presidential debate, all of which are almost textbook lessons of what not to do. Um, and the climate of polarization and adversary relationships seems to be reaching a peak in this country. So I, I think the timing of your book is amazing. Well, thank you. We're really, we really just felt such an urgent need to get this out. And I should tell you that Don and I um, were at a conference in June about high-conflict divorce, and we're commenting on how the election is becoming, and we should say elections, because it's not just the presidential election. Of course. Rational elections, city elections are all developing this high-conflict dynamic that, that people just feel swept up in. 
and don't understand. So we were talking about that and said we really should explain to people this is much more serious than they realize. It isn't just entertainment. It actually is putting kind of a poisonous air out there into the whole American family. And if we think of America as a family, we're doing to this family what high-conflict parents are doing to their families in high-conflict divorce cases. And we've got 30 years of history to see that that doesn't work. It really leads to more and more escalation, alienation of children. And in the nation, we see the alienation of voters is very strong right now. And we said, we've got to write about this now. So we actually wrote this book in five weeks. Wow. We quickly did our research. We already had some thoughts, each of us, and and it really came together well. We had a good synergy between the two of us because we were we're so concerned in the same way about what we're seeing. So I think you're absolutely right. The timing is right, and I'm so glad that you're paying attention to this topic because I, I just think the future, people don't realize, can really be affected by this kind of behavior. Uh, it, uh, I, I sense that the whole atmosphere is being poisoned by this kind of behavior, but let's let's go roll that out as we continue our conversation. First, what do you mean by the word splitting in the title, Splitting America? Well, splitting is really <clears throat> has two meanings. Of course, is, is splitting uh, in half uh, the nation where we see, you know, 47 percent for one candidate, 47 percent for the other. And a lot of elections these days that are very high conflict turn out to be almost 50-50. So splitting in that regard. But splitting is a psychological term that's associated primarily with uh, two personality disorders, borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder, in which the person actually believes that those in their life are either all good or all bad, with no gray areas, no ambivalence, uh, nothing. And it's actually a developmental problem because children really by four or five years old have learned that people have good and bad qualities and they've got to look for both, watch out for both, and also reinforce both of those qualities. So it's really a psychological term as well as a description of how split uh, in half the nation is right now. And it's that the process of splitting is an emotional process it's an all-or-nothing process, and, and people talk about it, you know, especially people with disorders, talk about it in constant crisis. Uh, this person's evil, all bad, they're a monster, and, or I'm perfect, I've never done anything wrong. And we see that play out in high-conflict divorce uh, battles, mm -hmm. and most people are familiar with someone that's going through that, and that... It, we think of splitting as a verb, that it's something that's done to families that's emotional, it's got a crisis intensity, it's got all or nothing thinking, and includes attacks on the whole person. You talk about a high-conflict personality uh, who is usually at the heart of one of these high-conflict divorces. Uh, and also seems to be a characteristic 
more and more found amongst politicians. What characterizes a high-conflict personality? I think in its most simple terms, there's four factors to think of. First of all, it's a preoccupation with other people's behavior and not looking at their own. It's a lot of all-or-nothing thinking or solutions. You know, we just eliminate the other person, life will be wonderful. Um, There's unmanaged emotions or crisis emotions that really trigger other people's uh, anxiety and, and motivate action. And there's extreme behaviors. So it isn't just uh, we disagree. It's people spread rumors, uh, spread false information, uh, sometimes attack each other. And we see this in high-conflict divorce cases. They may attack each other verbally, financially, physically. We see domestic violence. Um, so it's these four characteristics, preoccupation with blaming others, all-or-nothing thinking, unmanaged or crisis emotions, and extreme behaviors. And it's a pattern of that. In other words, it's part of who they are. That's why we talk about high-conflict personalities rather than just high-conflict behavior. Almost anyone may engage in some of that on an occasion, but it's a pattern of that behavior. And those are the people we see driving high-conflict divorce cases. And what we're seeing is that politicians who might actually be reasonable people are starting to adopt this high-conflict pattern of behavior themselves. And that's, that's what our fear is, that we're actually teaching people how to act badly, and this becomes part of children's personality development. So we can affect the nation in the future by the behavior we're seeing today. So that's what we mean by high-conflict personality. Mm-hmm. I I will just observe that the behavior that we're seeing today is not only amongst politicians, but it's mirrored in uh, our entertainment. It's mirrored in television, movies, books. Yes, we're very much seeing that. And and I think there's kind of a synergy, a negative synergy between um, the entertainment businesses, which really have to show extreme behavior to grab attention. Um, a mild movie about a happy family isn't going to go anywhere. You've got to have extremes. So what we see in the culture increasingly as there's competition by entertainment um, businesses to get an audience, you have to get more and more extreme. So we have more violence, more, more extreme drama, relationship, bad behavior, uh, people saying extreme things about each other. And our brain is, is really wired to hook into that. So what attracts attention to promote um, an entertainment is actually bad behavior. And what we're getting is a dominance in the media in many ways of focusing on this bad behavior as a way to attract uh, followers, and and it's 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 damaging, really. I believe. Yeah, I, I'm put in mind when I watch some of the news, so-called news shows, of the wrestling, you know, the sort of staged wrestling competitions. Anyway, um, so 
I was fascinated by the many tables you have in the book that show the parallels between the dynamics in a divorce situation and the dynamics in politics. What are some of the sort of most outstanding similarities that you see between high-conflict divorce and today's elections? Well, we see several kinds of parallels. First, in terms of the four characteristics I just described of high-conflict personalities uh, that we see drive high-conflict divorce, and in some divorces it's one person with that pattern of behavior, and sometimes it's both people. And we're seeing that now in politics. So we have uh, a preoccupation with the other person. And it's interesting, uh, one article we read said that the definition of a negative ad is one that mentions the other, the other candidate. And when you think about it, you can say what you're going to do, what your plans are, how good they are, without even mentioning the other person's name. So when you look at the ads, the mentioning of the other person's name is close to 100% negative. And so there's this preoccupation with blaming the other candidate for situations that some people kind of joke about as like the entire United States history has been dumped on one or the other candidate at some time during the uh, election process. Uh, so we see this preoccupation with blaming the other person rather than really presenting useful information. We see the extremes of uh, thinking, the all-or-nothing solutions. You know, I'm going to totally eliminate this or I'm going to totally impose that. And we know that politics is a messy process. Legislation is a messy process, but... It's a democratic process. It includes the thinking of many, many people. So our politicians are really supposed to represent us in haggling out and deciding what the best plan is after hearing many points of view. And that's the best way in a, in a divorce as well, is that both parents actively involved in shaping decisions. But in politics today, we're seeing these all-or-nothing solutions that may or may not be dictated by one candidate or the other. Um, we're seeing really that the um, crisis emotions, uh, really, people don't realize that crisis emotions actually shut down your logical thinking in your brain, that uh, the part of the brain that reacts to crisis is different and is much more focused on uh, immediate fight, flight, or freeze responses. So if you're faced with, uh, let's say you're, you're um, walking down a street and there's a runaway truck and it's coming right for you, you don't start calculating things, you run. And so if someone else says run, you run. And so we have this intense crisis emotions in our political speeches now. It's, it's the, the raised tone saying how bad the other person is. It's personal attacks. And we see this in high-conflict divorce and in politics. The person is evil. The person is a monster. The person's immoral. Um, the person's unethical. Or the person's incompetent. You say the other person doesn't have a clue 
how to run an economy, or the other person doesn't have a clue about foreign policy. I mean, that's quite disrespectful, and yet that's what we see in high-conflict divorce as well as in politics today. So we're seeing the all-or-nothing, the crisis emotions, the personal attacks. It's, it's almost identical to what we see in divorce, and a lot of the language is the same also. You also drew some interesting parallels between the players. So, for example, you were saying that the, um, the, the, the high-conflict individual was like, uh, in the divorce, the high-conflict parent was parallel to the politician and um, the, the divorce court itself. You, you drew parallels between the divorce court and, was it... Uh, the news media news media, right. And then yeah. the PACs, what role do the super PACs play? In a way, that, yeah. So we, we saw that the parents, that politicians are acting like high-conflict parents. They're attacking each other in public and saying each other's all good or all bad. What we see with the super PACs is that they really mirror the role of the advocates, which is usually the lawyers, and I'm a family lawyer and I've represented clients in family court, but what I've seen in the high conflict cases, which may be perhaps 15 to 20 percent of divorce cases in uh, family court, are uh, that, they, that some of the high conflict uh, advocates or lawyers don't have any investment in the outcome, they're, they're really invested in raising the emotions, raising the conflict, and, and, of course, making money from that, and not really concerned about the people involved. And, and what we see with the research we did on the book about super PACs is finding out people that do ads for super PACs really see it as an art form and don't care what happens after November 6th. It's really you know, how we work our trade of attack ads. And the people that actually do those uh, really enjoy it and like the idea of making them dark and mysterious and threatening. And when you ask them, and I read some interviews uh, with these folks, we ask them, don't you think that's manipulative or that's harmful? And they say, no, it's actually beautiful. It's a work of art that we're creating without any concern about the people involved or the election. And in terms of family court, in a high-conflict case, that's where high-conflict parents and their advocates go to say how bad the other person is publicly. And so we see that really as the news media has really started playing the same role as people come to the news media to make their allegations about the other person publicly. And in many cases, to spread information that's not accurate. Uh, the concept of fact-checking, I think, has never been as, as important and as talked about as it has been in this election. Because we're seeing people bring information that's really, really questionable in this, um, in, into the media and, and the media's role, and it's partly conscious, partly unconscious, is to simply broadcast all of this potentially useless information. 
So that's why we need programs like yours where you have 50 minutes to talk about what's really going on. Because when you have a two-minute soundbite, there's a much higher risk of misinformation that does, in fact, persuade people. So that's the parallels that we're seeing. The last one I want to mention is the children. In high-conflict divorce, we have a lot of alienated children who either take one parent's side, the other parent's side, or just become depressed and withdrawn from the conflict. And now we're seeing that's where the voters are. The voters, some are intensely taking one side, some are intensely taking the other side, and a whole lot of voters, I think, would just as soon just get this whole thing over with. Some of them aren't going to vote at all. Some of them haven't decided, even though there's only a couple weeks left. But there's that, that alienation that we've seen for 30 years in family court, we're starting to see in the electorate. And so these parallels are dramatic and should be concerning, I think. Yeah, it used to be that after the election, people would, you know, put the election rhetoric aside and then get down to work for the good of the country. And we're not seeing that anymore. I mean, somebody like Olympia Snow resigned or said she wasn't going to go for re-election because she just, it was no fun anymore. It wasn't the kind of, of work that she that an honest person should undertake. And that's very discouraging because what we're finding, and we just wrote a blog about it a week ago, is that we're losing moderates uh, in Congress and, and moderates are key to helping find resolution on these issues and making decisions and moving forward. And whether someone is more to the left or the right, you know, Democrat or Republican, you need people that can communicate with everybody. Um, and, and now we're finding that that communication is really grinding to a halt almost between people and the parties. They won't talk to each other or they hate each other. It's very concerning. How do you think that both divorce and politics got so ugly? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think some of our theory is that it's the reinforcement of negative statements and allowing negative statements. And one of the things in researching the book, Don and I found is that marriage researchers um, have found that there's about a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative comments and behaviors in any healthy marriage. In other words, if, if I were to say, well, can anyone tell me, is there anyone out there who never said anything negative about a spouse or partner? Um, no one could raise their hand. We all do that. But we do so much more positive in the relationship that the negative, you know, we can tolerate a certain amount of negatives, kind of like shock absorbers with a car. And so if you have five times as much positive as negative, a relationship can maintain with that. And that's okay. And that's healthy. What we're getting now, I think, in family court is this reinforcement of negativity by being able to go to court and just say 100% negative things about the other person, um, talking to people who encourage and reinforce that. I think a lot, our larger culture, has become focused on the negative because it's exciting, it grabs our attention, 
And it, um, unfortunately, it's what sells. It's what gets people going. And so I were concerned that, that the media in general um, is speeding up with negativity and that we're not realizing as a culture we're absorbing that. Now, another one specific to politics, which we mentioned in the book, is two, two decisions that have made a big difference. One really was started many years ago was the fairness doctrine, where if someone said uh, something, you know, a point of view, let's say you had a point of view on an issue, a local or national issue, and it played on television, then you had to have someone get equal time to say the other point of view. So the the thing we mentioned in the book about the uh, Saturday Night Live skit of uh, Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin doing point-counterpoint, a lot of people don't realize that that was actually the law up until the late 1980s, I believe it was. So by removing that, you can just say all kinds of negative stuff about the other side without ever hearing from the other side, mm-hmm. a TV newscast. The other is the, of course, Citizens United decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2010, where the restrictions were basically lifted. So you can have uh, super PACs, you can have attack ads, and not know who's behind them and without any restraint. So I think those all put together, we've created a cultural conflict that's become much more negative, intense, and bitter. It's not just a culture of conflict. It's a culture that sells um, the election to the highest bidder. Uh, the the amounts of money that have been spent by both sides on advertising for this election are obscene. They 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 were about a billion dollars or, or more. I, I can't remember whether it was a billion dollars for each side or all together. I think it was for each side. I, I mean. What? <laughs> it just leaves me breathless. It's it's really shocking. And I was just seeing in the paper this morning that there was some comments about that. That it, it was believed that um, that the, the dollars wise that there's more uh, people funding the super PACs. Uh, for some of the Republican candidates, and there was the belief that this will be a bonanza uh, for Republicans. But what's happening is, depending on which race you look at, um, some of the congressional races, some of the Republican candidates are being way outspent by Democratic super PACs. And so we're really, and we wrote this book uh to be really as objective as possible, we see this problem with both parties. And I believe it was the Republican super PACs were going to spend about a billion dollars in uh, in ads. I think the Democrats were somewhere around half a billion dollars. And this is the presidential election. But in other specific elections, the Democrats are outspending the Republicans. And what we're starting to see is both both Democrat and Republicans are starting to say, maybe this is a really bad idea. Now, it's not 
gaining a groundswell yet, but it should, because I think both Republicans and Democrats are being hurt by this and certainly will be hurt. If this is if this continues, the election we've just seen um, will not compare to what we'll be seeing in four and eight and 12 years. Well, this ties back into your earlier comment about the the news media and entertainment. I mean, the the sort of frisson of excitement that you get with an attack from a, a you know Rush Limbaugh or Greta Van Susteren or you know one of these kind of or or even the, the humor of a John Stewart. Um, the the um, the substance of truth is totally uh, overshadowed by the entertainment value. And really, as you said, these, these um, networks are in the business of making money. And uh, if I, I dare go out on a limb, um, the people behind the super PACs are certainly not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, except with, with, with the exception of the small donors who are, you know, giving uh, fifty or a hundred dollars. Um, but the, the the big donors are expecting something in return. So we're basically selling America downstream. Absolutely, and and what you find is the super PAC's money is coming from a very small uh, number of people. By and large, the, you hear about someone donating $200 million to a campaign, and they don't have to say who they are or what they're getting for it. And so you, you read in the press about a handful of people uh, keeping a lot of these super PACs going. And so you're absolutely right. So if, if six or 10 or 12 people make the difference in an election... Is that the way the nation should be run? And and what does that mean for the future? Are we really going to become more of a feudal system where you have the, uh, the wealthy lord of the manor deciding everything and the rest of us just playing out part of a charade but not really getting to make decisions? And so this concentration of money in the election I believe, really needs to be reversed. I think we really need to pressure all the politicians to get back to uh, a more limited spending type of election where people are hearing ideas instead of hearing attack ads over and over and over again. I couldn't agree more. And this reminds me of another point when we're talking about um, selling out to uh, corporations. Um, and that is with our media. Uh, we talk about um, what sells as being an excuse for going down to the lowest common denominator in terms of family values and so on. It it never ceases to amuse me or amaze me that um, people will get on their high horse about right to life and, and uh, you know, uh, family values, you know, married, gay marriage rights and things like that. And yet they totally turn a blind eye to the pornography and the violence that are so, you know, continuously peddled on the major media. 
Yeah, and that's part, I think, of the the drama and the excitement. It's like we hate violence on TV, and yet that's what we watch. We hate disrespect. We hate incivility, yet you say, you know, this person was, guess what so-and-so said about so-and-so today? Now we're all ears. So part of it, I think, is all of us as part of being Americans, as being voters, as being citizens, need to say we're not going to do what's tempting um, quite as much. Uh, Not only do we need some laws to restrain some of this uh, expense and drama in the elections, but we also need to say some of this stuff is really harmful to us. It's, It's harmful to the soul of the country to be seeing and watching all this violence, uh, seeing and watching all this disrespect by, by our leaders. And, and so we, we have to really understand ourselves and, and realize this is, uh, I think of the brain, this is part of the brain really, really gets hooked by this stuff. And we have to override that, and we can, just like we override jumping off a bridge just because we see someone else doing it. Um, we need to override watching and reinforcing some of this behavior and, and not making the ratings so high on TV for the worst programs, but actually uh, reinforcing the informative programs. So I, I, I think somehow we as citizens have to take some responsibility here, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What What are the... Um, approaches that you have found helpful in your practice to overcoming the high conflict situations? Well, one of the first things is we've realized, because I like to say we've had 30 years of research on high conflict divorce, and we certainly haven't stopped it because we haven't gotten everyone to kind of agree on how to put some restraints here. But one of the things is simply how people talk to each other. And one of the methods um, we've developed with High Conflict Institute is BIF responses. And you mentioned at the beginning our book, BIF, Quick Responses to High Conflict People. And BIF responses are basically brief, informative, friendly, and firm. It's an acronym for four aspects of how to respond. And we're teaching those to parents, high-conflict parents, the spouses or former co-parents of high-conflict parents. And we're finding that it works, that people can actually start restraining their own comments to each other. So especially on the Internet, in emails, on Facebook, etc., is having having comments that are more informative, that don't personally attack the other person, instead of saying, look, you jerk, how bad you are, do it my way, we're saying, uh, thanks for responding to my request, here's my information on that issue, and making it more matter-of-fact, taking out the personal attacks. And what we find is with that, Even if only one parent is starting to write BIF responses, we're getting feedback that the other parent starts writing them too because they see how much more reasonable they look 
And especially if people's correspondent ends up in court, you want to be the person that looks reasonable. So we're teaching people to speak more reasonably to each other in writing and in person. And frankly, we think, Don and I think, that politicians could speak that way to each other and still get their points across, that information doesn't have to come with a personal attack. And the person with the most useful information, and they can be very assertive about making points without attacking the other side. We don't need the sarcasm, the personal attacks, just the information. And that's just one step. Also in high-conflict divorce, we, of course, have mediation. Both Don and I are family mediators, and we put a lot of time and energy into helping uh, potentially high-conflict couples calm down, manage their interactions, make their decisions with some assistance, and, and really it calms the conflict by being able to say, wait a minute, don't go there, go over here, and let's work on making proposals, responding to proposals mm-hmm. respectfully. And we can train parents to do that and assist them in making good decisions. And that's yeah, but the other, the other side of the con- the, the, that equation is in the political arena is the perception of the general public. It was interesting when you were talking about the Biff response. I had read it before I watched the last presidential debate. And I was thinking, it sounds like Mr. Romney has read your book. And he was coming across as much more reasonable and conciliatory and really very much a, a page out of your playbook. And yet the media you know, saw that as weakness. Um, so it, it's a question of us, the the general public, not demanding red meat and blood on the floor. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think when politicians try it, they have to both be doing it. Because if one does it and the other does the red meat attack, that's what's the, in the headlines the next day. And... And people, people as um, bystanders or almost as voyeurs really prefer to see other people beat each other up. It, it, it appeals to our brain. It kind of grabs our attention. And it's much more exciting than two reasonable people discussing an issue. Yet we have to remember this election is about the next four years of a country and of the world. And this, this isn't it's it's become entertainment and i i think that's that's part of the tragedy that that we've allowed and maybe even reinforced but if both politicians would do biff responses i think we'd be a much more uh informed electorate but one more thing i want to say with this you can be very assertive about your information without turning it into a personal attack And that's what I learned as a lawyer in family court. And that's how I I won my cases, if you want to say they were won, is the judges listened more to me because I had more information to give them. And I appeared more reasonable. And if the other attorney or the other party was flapping their arms and saying all these extreme things, sooner or later the judge got it. But at the beginning of the case... The drama often won, and it took a few months 
to get things really more accurate. And unfortunately, with elections, we're just seeing the snippets. And, and, and it, it hasn't evolved into a year of information. It's evolved into a year of sound bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there's also the social media that's driving this. When you're talking about sound bites, you can't get more sound bitey than a tweet. Exactly. The faster we are, the less deep we are, and and we're all gonna kind of hang ourselves on brief statements. And someday we're gonna get something that's spread too wide, that's totally wrong, totally uh, untrue. And, and, and it's going to have some negative effects. Uh, we, we, we really have to restrain ourselves and support um, more restraints on politicians. Uh, we, we can't, it can't all just be you can say whatever you want, just like you can't say fire, you can't yell fire in a theater. I think some of the stuff we're seeing today really should be disallowed. Um, it's, it's, it goes too far. It really is the equivalent. That's a great analogy. It really is the equivalent of shouting fire in a theater. And uh, what do you see as the prognosis? Do you think that we are maturing? Uh, Maybe it takes this extreme to get people to wake up to the consequences of what's happening. Well, it's, it's hard to say, but what we tend to see about high-conflict behavior, and because I deal with workplace disputes, healthcare disputes, as well as family disputes and neighbor disputes as well, is at some point the community gets motivated to set limits on the high-conflict people and say, wait a minute, you know, you're over the top here, you can't do that. Um, and so in family court, it's often the judge plays that role. Uh, we mentioned a high-conflict case in the, that had been in the news and how the judge basically said, you need to get yourselves out of the news and close your mouths, and then you can both raise your daughter. <laughs> and so they did. And so we, we need someone like the family court judge to step in, and I think that has to be the electorate um, with some more laws. But the prognosis... Here's what I what I really think is, unfortunately, high-conflict situations often get worse before they get better. And one of my fears is that this election is going to be so close that half the country just doesn't believe that the winner um, should really be respected and, and followed and, and accepted and respected. And so I think we're going to see high-conflict behavior actually escalating after the election. As you said earlier, it used to be politicians would, would, you know, tone down their rhetoric and start working together after the election as a period of peace for maybe a couple of, like, six months or a year or a couple of years before the next election. I think after this, we're going to see it escalate, unfortunately. And I, I hope that there is an individual... Um, extreme behavior, but one of my concerns is there may be a few individuals do some extreme behaviors, just like we saw with Gabby Giffords getting shot. That that seemed to culminate after a lot of really high-conflict rhetoric. And I hope that I'm wrong, and, and I don't say this too much, but I think we have to watch out after the election to really put calm 
calm parties. And I think your program is a great uh, example by talking about this. And people have to realize we need to calm people down um, after the election. My fear is that over the next four years, there won't be new restraints put in place. The money spent will be $2 billion instead of $1 billion by each side. And it may be four or eight years before people really figure out this is a terrible direction to go in. So that's that's a lot of why we wrote this book. We really want to warn people. We've seen this in divorce. Now we're seeing the courts start getting a handle on this. There's much more use of mediation, uh, collaborative divorce, negotiation between the parties and lawyers. Most people really are reasonable and want reasonable solutions. So I think they're going to have to get, we're going to have to get more active. But my prognosis is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. It may take four or eight years to really address this sufficiently. Well, that's pretty dispiriting. Yes, uh, to say that, but, but I find it's helpful to predict reality. So maybe we speed up our efforts to make it more positive. In the long run, I'm optimistic. Human beings have abilities to rebound and figure things out. Uh, it's just, you know, we just need to start moving faster on this problem. Well, I think we need to to realize or recognize what polarization does and, you know, not see it just as the other side. Uh, you, you have uh, something called the High Conflict Institute. Tell me what that is. Well, basically, um, we're, we're several speakers. Um, we, we write, um, we write books, articles. We go around the country and actually the world speaking about managing high conflict disputes, primarily in legal settings, but also in workplace, because that's where we see, uh, an increase in high conflict behavior, high conflict personalities. So we've been amongst us, um, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, France, Sweden, uh, where else? Uh, pretty much covers it, but more than half the states really teaching professionals in seminars, but teaching everybody through books about patterns of high-conflict behavior, how to manage them if you're someone's target of blame, um, and how to uh, help other people, family members, neighbors, etc. And a lot of it is working against your, your instinctive feelings when you feel like escalating is actually calming. And the word about mirroring we put in the book, Splitting America book, is because we've learned that human beings do mirror each other's behavior and high-conflict people tend to get the people around them to become more angry and agitated. And so we tend to mirror high-conflict people, but that's a choice. Once you're aware of it, you can choose to not react that way, to maintain a moderate and calm manner, and high-conflict people actually calm down and become more moderate and calm themselves. And you offered two mantras in your book. Beg your pardon? You offered two mantras for our age in your book? Well, in the, uh, the Splitting America book especially, uh, one is, um, is it really a crisis? Because the tone is so much crisis, and yet a lot of these issues aren't really a crisis. They actually 
can have us think rationally. Because in a crisis, you can't think rationally. It's fight, flight, or flee, or fight, fight, flight, or freeze. But these are problems that need rational thinking. And the other is, is this really a hero? And most of these candidates tell us we're in a terrible crisis and you have to elect them because they're a hero. And we're quite skeptical on both. So when it comes to voting and and weighing candidates is to just constantly ask ourselves, is this really a crisis, what they're telling us about? And is this really a hero who's the only person who could possibly handle it? And I think with that, we can really maybe get more reasonable, moderate people um, working on these problems again and get rid of a lot of this noise. Wise words indeed. Well, that brings us to the end of the show, Bill. And we've been speaking with William Eddy, Bill Eddy, who is the author or co-author of Splitting America, How Politicians, Super PACs, and the News Media Mirror High Conflict Divorce. And his website is highconflictinstitute.com. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Miriam. I really enjoyed it, and I'm so glad you're doing this. So best wishes with everything. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, you'll find our whole archive on our website at ncreview.com, along with summaries and reviews for thousands of new consciousness books and films. You'll also find a link there to our mobile app, as well as videos, events, author profiles, and blogs. That's at ncreview.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and facebook.com slash ncreview. Next week, our guest will be Dr. Eben Alexander, an eminent neurosurgeon who had one of the most amazing near-death experiences you'll ever hear about. We will discuss his new book, Proof of Heaven. Now we're going to close with our track of the week, selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. With styles ranging from pop and rock to folk and jazz, this growing group of musicians uses music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. This week we're featuring the delightful Karen Drucker with My Religion is Kindness. My religion is kindness My church is nature My God is a feeling That lives deep inside My job is to be conscious My path is forgiveness My religion is kindness And I practice it every day Everyone has a story Everyone has pain When we strip away our masks We find that we're really all the same It's those little things we say and do That can mean so much It's a smile, a connection A simple love and touch My religion is kindness My church is nature My God is a feeling It lives deep inside
just love her? That was Karen Drucker from Mill Valley, California with My Religion is Kindness. Karen is an award-winning singer-songwriter and motivational speaker. You can hear in her music her great passion for making a difference in the world. To find out more about Karen's music, go to karendrucker.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-D-R-U-C-K-E-R.com. And to discover more great music or to join the PMA, go to positivemusicassociation.com. Well, that wraps up our show for today. I hope you'll join us next week and tell your friends about it, too. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.